We have begun our journey through the Gospel of John this year in 2020. We're going to take an entire year and just dig into this mystic, mysterious, majestic, I'll just keep alliterating, (laughs) Gospel. It is so incredible. I've been reading through the Gospel in the original languages, and it's just mind-blowing what John does with this literary piece of art that he gives to us. He said specifically in John chapter 20, verse 31, that he wrote this gospel so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This gospel is actually a missionary document, and John wrote it specifically to cross over ethnic, social, educational, economic, and cultural barriers John actually intended that the communities formed by his gospel, the mature members of those communities, John gave them this gospel so that they could go and invite anyone and everyone they possibly could throughout the Roman Empire to come and see Jesus, the true King of Kings. This morning, what we're going to be talking about is what a healthy discipleship culture looks like. A healthy discipleship culture. Now, let me take just a moment. Let's briefly talk about that word, discipleship. 20 years ago, when I first came into the church, there were all these church words. I had no clue what any of them meant. Discipleship was one of them. It sounded super weird to me. So what exactly is discipleship? In ancient societies of antiquity, humans committed themselves to different master teachers. And a disciple who had committed themselves to a master teacher they didn't just take in their information. They didn't just read their books and listen to their podcasts and take in all the data. These disciples, as they committed themselves to their masters, they actually lived their lives emulating the behaviors and the beliefs of their teachers. They committed themselves to practicing the way of their masters. And they lived with them. They literally were in relational proximity with them 24 hours a day, night and day. They followed them everywhere they went. So the closest modern equivalent we have to discipleship in our day and age is found in the trades, the modern trades. There are master journeymen, plumbers, electricians, and masons. And they take these disciples, these apprentices under their wings as they do the work in their work contexts. And so the apprentices, they're not only taught the trade by the master, but they do the actual work and they emulate the master's work practices on the job. That's discipleship. We are apprentices of Jesus, practicing the way of our master in the world. So we don't only gather on Sunday morning to study his teaching. We emulate, we do, we operate as Jesus operated operated in the world. And it's as we are with Jesus in relational proximity, silence, solitude, scripture meditation, Sabbath keeping, community. As we are with Jesus, we become like Jesus. And as we become like Jesus, we actually collectively do what Jesus did in the world. So a collective community like us, practicing the way of Jesus, this forms a discipleship culture. Now let's take just a moment and talk about culture as well. We need to understand what's being said here. Culture is simply the commonly understood beliefs, language, and practices of any given community. There are literally millions of different types of cultures within every community system. So culture is like the water that a fish swims in. And the fish doesn't really notice the water, but the water touches everything that the fish is in because it's what the fish lives in, and the water influences everything. 
a community's particular culture, it's taught with words, but more importantly, it's also caught without a single word even being spoken. So new people will come into a community and they are able to notice immediately the definitive markers of that particular community's culture. Let me give you an example from ours that I'm super proud of and I love. Our creative team put together a bank of words or phrases that they thought described neighbors. Things like barefoot in the grass. <laughs> Things like acoustic. This was, this was a good one. Words like contemplative and mystic. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, it's working. Things like, oh, this was a good one. A word that describes our culture, seen. Oh, how good is that? This was my absolute favorite of all of them. This is going to be tattooed on me somewhere someday. My favorite was this. <clears throat> you rise with your neighbor and you fall with your neighbor. We never taught that. I never did a sermon series on that. That's our culture. From the very beginning, loved ones, you're doing it. Well done. It's so powerful. We rise with our neighbor. We fall with our neighbor. That's our culture. So a community of apprentices, we create this discipleship culture. And discipleship, apprenticeship unto Jesus, it's taught about on Sunday mornings, but it's also caught. It's the water that we swim in. It's what we do because everyone is doing it. It's actually just who we are. From our text this morning, to draw application, there's three definitive marks of a healthy discipleship culture. When people come into neighbors, these are things that they're going to notice, not because they're being necessarily talked about. This is just what these people do, these three definitive markers of a healthy discipleship culture. They are multiplication, transformation, and invitation. Multiplication, transformation, and invitation. Now, Note, these are not in any particular order. They could have gone invitation, transformation, multiplication. It could go invitation, multiplication, transformation. It could go transformation, multiplication. And do you see how it can go any which way? And this is why. Each of these markers of a healthy discipleship culture, they occur all throughout the text that we're about to study. They're equally a part of a discipleship culture. They're always present in all of the process. And so it's not one to the next to the next. It's just what's happening all the time. It's the water we swim in. Let's talk about multiplication here for a moment. Let's pick back up with the story of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He was the eccentric, camel hair wearing, leather, bait, leather belt around his waist, eating locusts out there in the deserts with that extreme separatist community, the Essenes. Do you remember him? The eccentric older cousin of Jesus. And he teaches us about the importance of multiplication. Coming back to the text we read. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now remember, as we talked about last week, John the Baptist was super popular. He was a very provocative preacher in his context. He was unsettling a lot of the societal status quo. John would have had a huge following on Instagram. He would have been the Instagram controversial influencer of his day. And because of this, he was drawing these huge crowds. But John's popularity, he was using it, and his joy was actually founded in not his popularity, but in pointing to Jesus. The goal of John's life wasn't more popularity. The goal of John's life was increasing the popularity of Jesus. John's desire was to multiply the kingdom of God at cost to his own influence. True discipleship multiplies and spreads always outward. True discipleship creates disciple makers. 
So the led become the leaders, the taught become the teachers, and all of this culminates in pointing to Jesus. Now, why is this so important for us? Even as a brand new forming community, church communities quickly and easily experience mission and vision drift. That is, we can lose our outward kind of multiplying mind frame and emphasis, and discipleship within church communities can easily devolve into what I would honestly assess as an ingrown codependency within the community. The other problem is that church communities, especially in the West, because of the way we do church on Sunday morning with a stage and usually one guy with a microphone or a couple people with microphones, the way we do this, it teaches the church wrongly, in my estimation, to become overly dependent on one of their members or a couple of their lead members, the face members, and the church begins to slowly stall in their process of maturity. Slowly, this entrenched spiritual immaturity can take over because new people, immature people, unbelievers are not being pointed to Jesus and new leaders aren't rising up and stepping up. This happens very subtly and it happens unintentionally. It happens by accident in the midst of us. I'll give you an example. I knew an elderly gentleman years and years ago, over a decade ago. He had been a pastor in a church. He was a church planter. Sweet, sweet old man. Everybody just wanted to be next to him. He was so kind. And he loved to mentor young guys. And he was actually pretty good at it. He didn't work at that time. He was completely retired. And so he had every day, all day, to just spend with these young dudes. And I noted a pattern in some of these young men that he mentored. Some of these guys would end up spending three to four hours every single day with this man in the afternoons. And Ultimately, at the end of the day, as they were talking to me, often they would be coming to me saying, why don't you spend more time with me like so-and-so does? And I'd be like, because I've got three kids and all of that. But what began to happen with these guys is in their lives, they began to not be able to make decisions without his counsel at all. Now, time and relational proximity for discipleship and a healthy discipleship culture is important. But the problem was these young men were being trained to look to this gentleman as their ultimate end instead of Jesus himself. They were codependent in this way. This old man, he needed these young dudes for the relationship that it gave him, and they became codependent in that they just had to have his guidance and his approval. And it was ingrown because these young men were stalling in their growth. They never were leaving their leader to go lead others to the true leader, Jesus. Now, I want to remind you guys, I don't want to sound caustic here or biting. This gentleman was kind, and he was doing what he believed to be discipleship. But he was unintentionally ending his followers at himself, unlike John the Baptist, who intentionally sent his followers away to Jesus. We need to maintain an intentional discipleship process that reduces our name and even our influence in the eyes of those we influence, and increases the name of Jesus. It's a tricky trade, this thing called apprenticeship to Jesus. You have to be intentional, focused, and wise, and humble, and let go of your own name and influence in the process. Now, this is why, prayerfully, our neighbor's communities will multiply. Walk with me through this. Relationships take time. We're all about stillness. We're all about doing less at Neighbors Church. We're all about slow down spirituality. We're all about pacing ourselves that's manageable. Relationships take time. And we want to be family. We want our communities to be family. But families ultimately, through time and space, they grow and they mature and they multiply. The kids leave in a prayerful fashion 
they leave their homes and they start their own families. In fact, we look at families where there may be the 45-year-old fellow still sitting downstairs on his couch eating Doritos, playing whatever it is that they play at this point. And we say, ugh, that doesn't look right. There's something, there's an entrenched immaturity happening there. And so, groups with a healthy discipleship culture, we actually expect people to rise up and to multiply out and to take the role of new leader and start the process over and over and over. Guys, this is why we plant more churches. San Diego, I'm from Seattle. We've spent 11 years in Seattle. It's a church planting graveyard. It's a church graveyard up in the Intermountain Northwest. It's legit brutal up there. San Diego, in comparison, is like the Bible Belt of the Southwest. There's churches just everywhere. It's crazy. And so I've been asked a lot, why are you guys planting more churches? Why is Park Hill planting more churches? Why is Neighbors planting more churches? Here's why. There's a tempting dynamic in our technological age that we fall prey to. From our phones right now, we can listen to the most charismatic and wise teachers on the planet. And that's an amazing thing. That's actually a really good thing. Unless we become so dependent on these outside teachers that we miss what the Spirit is actually doing this morning in our local context, in this local community, with the voices that we're in real, tangible relationship with. Do you guys remember this tragic stat? From I don't remember which series it was. One out of five non-Christian North Americans don't even know a Christian. One out of five people walking down the street have never met a legitimate Christian and walked with an apprentice of Jesus for any amount of time. We multiply and plant churches because 20% of the people that we interact with tomorrow don't know a Christian, much less listen to the podcast that we're learning from. Church planting, it localizes the mission of Jesus. Church planting invites people into communities with real flesh and blood and handshakes and eye contact with the multiple voices that are introducing them to Jesus. And it's hard. We planted churches out of our church up in Seattle, and it was hard. You multiply. It's been hard for Evan and Park Hill and that team. You send out. You let go of. It's costly, and it's going to cost us as we plant churches out of neighbors. But the mind frame is multiplication for the sake of those who have yet to see Jesus and believe and experience life in his name. Transformation. Let's talk about transformation in healthy discipleship contexts. As we embody this multiplying mind frame of discipleship, the kingdom naturally grows, and what comes from that is transformation of our souls personally and corporately, transformation. You might say that transformation and discipleship, they're synonyms. That's the big idea of Christianity, that you are becoming fully you. You are being transformed from darkness to light, from below you've been born from above, You are moving forward into who God truly intended you to be. The false self is falling away. The true spirit at rest self is coming alive. Discipleship is all about this transformation process. Let's see how this works. When the two disciples heard him, that's John the Baptist. Remember, they were following him. And John says on his Instagram, look, the Lamb of God, stop following me. Go follow Jesus. They follow Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw these two disciples following them. And he asked, what do you want? What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Remember, John is translating this gospel from multiple languages. That's why you have all these little parenthetical translations. Where are you staying, they asked. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. 
The heading that I want to work this point in is transformation happens to our desires. Discipleship transforms our desires. These two men left John the Baptist in obedience to his mentoring, and from the very first moment that they meet Jesus, Jesus goes after their desires. How do we know that? Jesus asks them, as they are following him, he turns around and he literally, what do you want? Now, John does this a lot in his gospel. He layers tons of meaning in the words and the phrases. So words and phrases don't just have a surface meaning. They have layers and concentric circles of application and meaning. And John intends us to meditate on these words and phrases. On the surface, of course, Jesus is just asking, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you following? What do you want? But at the level of discipleship, Jesus is getting to the core of their beings by going after their desires. Discipleship is always a process of discerning what our deepest desires are and then learning to find those desires met in their fullest sense through this believing, obedient relationship with God. Let's talk here for a moment about desires. And really drive this home. The Trappist monk, Cisterian monk, Thomas Keating, he developed contemplative prayer practices called Centering Prayer. It's a big staple of our community. Keating taught that humans have three emotional programs that are always running in our brain that we, through these programs, pursue happiness with. Three emotional programs. That is a need for affection and esteem, uh, a need for security and survival, and a need for control and power. These are the big emotional programs that we have governing our pursuit of happiness. Now, in short, this is a huge summary, but Keating taught that these ingrained structures of desire, these needs, these three key needs, they shape every decision that you and I make. Every decision we make, we're either pursuing affection and esteem or security and survival or control and power. Everything we're anxious about is because we're pursuing affection and esteem, security, and security for survival, or control and power. The tragedy of sin, as Keating taught and the Bible teaches, and our separation from God, is that each of us end up pursuing the fulfillment of these desires, these needs, in ways that ultimately will never satisfy, never meet us fully. So, for example, we attach making lots of money with that need for security, even though the scriptures would say, be anxious for nothing, point us to Jesus who this morning clothed the lilies of the field beautifully and gave the birds breakfast, right? But instead, we attach our money to this sense of security and this sense of control and survival. Uh, much of our anxiety, if we're honest, is sourced in our laboring to control people's perceptions of us, and that's due to our need for esteem and affection, Okay. Our identity management program is just our futile attempt to control people's perceptions of us. It really doesn't take much reflection to realize that almost all of our woes and anxieties are because we want esteem and affection, security to survive, power and control. And yet somehow, no matter what we do, no matter what we gain to have those things satisfied, the deep, contented, restful, unanxious presence that we long for eludes us. We never are able to finally just get there, to feel safe, to feel secure, to know we are loved, to feel like we have power and control of the things around us. So when Jesus turns around and he says to you this morning, what do you want? He's inviting us to this introspective process as we follow him, as we apprentice under him. He's asking us, what do I want? And then he's asking us to consider, why do I want that? 
Why may be the most important question to ask when referencing your own desires with Jesus. Why do I want that? Why is that so important to me? And where can I find that? This is the process of transformation in our desires. And these disciples, they didn't know how deep Jesus was going with them from the very, very beginning, their first moment with him. So they just respond at a very surface level. Where are you staying? Not even realizing that their surface level response is actually super deep. Let me explain why. In their response to Jesus, what do you want? Where are you staying? Where can we stay with you? They use a very specific Greek word, and it's the Greek word meno. And that Greek word meno is literally translated through the rest of the, go- through the, rest of the gospel, where are you remaining or where are you abiding? Abiding. So this idea of remaining and abiding, it repeats over and over and over throughout the gospel until you get to this amazing chapter. It culminates in John chapter 15 for you Christians that have been reading the Bible for a while. Do you remember this passage? This is where Jesus says, unless you remain in me, abide in me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine. You are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. Remain in me to bear fruit. And then that whole passage, the centerpiece of that passage is John 15, 7, where Jesus says, if you remain, if you abide, if you stay in me and my words stay, abide, remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I want you to track with this. It's so important. The disciples are introduced to Jesus by their mentor, John. Then the first thing that Jesus asks them is, what do you want? And that question is heavy laden with layers of meaning. And they respond, where are you abiding? Where are you remaining? That remaining theme through the rest of the gospel intensifies to the point where you hit John 15 and it peaks where Jesus says, all desire... Everything that you do, all that you could ever ask for or want or long for in your deeps, it will be given as you remain in me, as you stay in me, as, your, as my words abide in you. This is the mysterious foundation of discipleship transformation. Do you, just by a show of hands, want to live a life of peace and happiness? Just show me. Who wants to live a life? If your hand isn't raised right now, I don't know why. Maybe you're, I don't know. Discipleship transformation is here. What do you want to live that happy, joy-filled, at peace, in the presence of God life, the life that belief brings about abundance? Our response is to be, I want to remain with you. What do you want? I want to abide in you, Jesus. What do you want? I want to stay with you. I want your word to stay in me. I want to live in this intimate union with you because then when I ask you for things that I want, I know those things are in alignment and I'm not using these emotional programs. My sense of esteem and affection, power and control, security and survival, they're all met because I'm face to face with you. I'm abiding in you. I'm remaining in you. And remaining with Jesus This is the core of our values here at Neighbors Church. Remember our three core values? Simplicity and stillness and spirit. Simplicity calls us and exhorts us to let go of the attachments that we've been basing our kind of emotional programs for happiness on. So money, material wealth, chaotic calendars, over-busyness, fatigue, all of those things are driving us. And simplicity says, I'm going to intentionally turn from those, and I'm going to reduce my sense of living and being to my relationship with God 
and my childlike relationship with him, and I'm going to live there. Stillness finally slows us down in places of silence and solitude where we can experience that union with our Father and give our day to him and walk with him. Sabbath-keeping, scripture meditation, all of these things. And it's as we practice these values, the Spirit comes and naturally, supernaturally transforms our desires. And as with all this text, everything multiplies through simple invitations. Let's keep moving through the passage. So Andrew, John the Baptist's disciple, goes after Jesus. Jesus starts going after Andrew's desires. Something begins to click in him. So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew goes and he introduces his brother Peter to Jesus. Now, we have this facet of transformation here that I want to talk about. Jesus doesn't go right for Peter's desire from the very beginning. Instead, Jesus, from the very beginning of Peter's discipleship process, points him to the end goal. He highlights for Peter, here's who I'm going to turn you into. Here's who you're going to be. Here's how I'm going to transform not only your desires but your entire identity because discipleship ultimately transforms our futures. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which was translated Peter. Can't spend a lot of time here. Simon, I'm going to give you a new name because this is who you're going to become. Simon, you're no longer Simon, son of Jonah. You are Cephas, Peter, which translates in our English versions, the rock. You are the rock, not the big, bald, tough guy with huge biceps. You are going to be the foundation you are going to be the foundation of that which upon I will build the church. Discipleship ultimately transforms us into Jesus, into who Jesus intended us to be. If we follow the progression of Peter's story, Jesus transforms this man in this long journey with Jesus from kind of an unpredictable man into one of the foundational stones. He becomes this rock-solid apprentice of Jesus upon which the church is built. What Jesus wants to do in you Starting today, this is what we prayed this morning at pre-gathering prayer, is he wants to assure you that who you are right now is not the end. He's utterly going to transform your identity through your longings, through your desires. As you abide in him, he will bring about the fullness, the fruitfulness of who he intended you to always, always be. And he renames us. He renames us according to a representation of who we are. And this invitation, you guys, this invitation that's been given to you and I, it's for all the 38,000 students walking along this campus today. It's for the 1.3 million people in our city in this moment. This invitation is for every human in the United States, every person on this globe, this invitation to transformation. It's for everybody, even the most skeptical and hard-hearted. That's what we learned from the section on Philip and Nathaniel, we learn that there are no hopeless causes when it comes to the king of kings and the kingdom of God. There is no one that God is not after and absolutely for to transform them into one of his servants. The next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, so it continues to spread. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, 
Now listen to Nathaniel's response. His, his friend Philip comes to him and says, I have found everything that we've been looking for our whole life. Esteem, affection, survival, security, power, control. I found it. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of this blue-collar carpenter from the middle of nowhere. And Nathaniel's response is, what? What are you talking about? What good can come from Nazareth? And then Philip just simply responds, come and see. You just got to come and see. So Philip found Nathaniel and he invites him, but Nathaniel's response was not immediately positive. Nathaniel was what I love to call an honest skeptic. He was an honest skeptic. Now, his biting comment, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There was probably a little bit of cultural and social eliteness going on in Nathaniel's response. Uh, his response was actually somewhat understandable. He he, he was looking for evidence, but he was also being a tad bit snooty. Uh, Nazareth was this backwater town in the middle of, of first century Palestine. It was, it was literally the middle of nowhere. And Jesus, as I said, was the son of a blue-collar average Joe. And on all accounts, Jesus was uneducated and underprivileged. I, I just, it's important that you guys grasp this. Can you imagine if I called you up and I said, look, everything that you've ever wanted, everything that you've ever needed... I met this guy, he's from Mendoka, North Dakota, and his name is Jerry, and he's it. <laughs> Each of us, as San Diego urban, educated elites, would say, Jerry from Mendoka, North Dakota? What, what good can come from there? I don't even know where that is. That's what's happening here with Nathaniel. He's responding like any educated skeptic would, like any urbanite would. But Philip didn't panic, and this is the point that needs to be made. Philip doesn't panic, he doesn't cower, he doesn't try to give some big apologetic explanation to how Jesus is most likely the Messiah, even though it's from this unexpected, surprising, impossible to understand place. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, you just got to come and see this. You just got to come and see him. And this is what we've seen over and over and over in this text. Jesus, or John points his disciples to Jesus and they begin to follow him. And then as they're following Jesus, they invite their family. Brothers are inviting brothers. And as brothers are inviting brothers, friends, all of a sudden, their desires are being transformed. Their futures are being transformed. They don't understand exactly how it's happening. It's mysterious. They're doing less because they're simplifying their calendars. They're experiencing silence and solitude. They're reading the scriptures in a whole new light. They have a community around them. And they are going out into the world to every person they're seeing, even the most skeptical. And they say, come and see. It's all about invitation. Simple invitation. Simple, intentional invitation. Come and see Jesus. And that is a definitive mark of a healthy discipleship culture. It is something that we need to pray for and hold on to and ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to send us out as John the Baptist went out originally before us with boldness and clarity in our message. Come and see. And those invitations are to go to the most skeptical and the least likely. Philip never gave up. He just kept going after Nathaniel, saying, come into my community. Come be in relationship with me. Manhattan pastor John Tyson, he says, don't say no to Jesus for someone else. Don't say no to Jesus for someone else. What he means is don't decide beforehand who's going to respond or not respond to an invitation from you to be in relationship with them to see Jesus, to be in your community, to come to a Sunday gathering. For Nathaniel's transformation, though, coming back to this idea of transformation to begin, and this is what I love, 
for Nathaniel's discipleship transformation to begin, he actually had to have his skepticism and his hard heart healed. He, he had to have his urban, elite, overly educated, super wealthy security thing broken down. He had to have his false self dismantled and deconstructed. And the way that Jesus did that was by showing him that he knew him fully. He knew who this man really was. He saw past the facade of education and money and wealth and hipsterness and whatever else Nathaniel was doing. He saw past it all, and he somehow let Nathaniel know, I see you and I know you. And it transformed this man's skepticism into obedience. Read with me. When Jesus, verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Guys, there's so much going on in this text. I wish we had another hour to talk just about this passage. It goes back to Genesis 28, Jacob, all this crazy stuff. But essentially here what happens is Jesus says, hey, you're a true blue guy. You call it like it is. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How do, how do you know me? Jerry from Mendoka, North Dakota, how do you know me? That's what's happening here. Nathaniel asks him, and Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip had ever invited you or called you. Now check with this. There's been a ton of conjecture over the millennia now about what Nathaniel was doing under that fig tree, what it means, how did Jesus see him there. Honestly, that is not the point of this story. The point of this section is that whatever Nathaniel was doing under that fig tree, it was something that only he could know about. It was something that was extremely important to him. It was something that was very private and very personal. But Jesus declared and he made clear, I saw you there and I know you, Nathaniel. Jesus' full knowledge of Nathaniel melted his heart. I'm reading another Keating book right now, and just last night there was this profound line where he said, Human happiness is not only knowing God, but knowing that you are fully known by God. Happiness is to know that you are known. My wife and I, in a, in a discipleship track that we take our leaders on, we like to say that the essence of Christianity is that you know and experience yourself as loved by God. That is the source, the fountainhead of true joy, true happiness. And for this hard skeptic, this urban elite who probably had a well-to-do life and was doing just fine, his skepticism was merited and warranted, but somehow Jesus was able to show him, I know you, I know your deepest places, and it dismantled this man's skepticism to the point where he said, verse 49, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Our skepticism, yours and mine, we all swim in this cultural aquarium of skepticism and cynicism. Our skepticism about faith, the supernatural, about religion, it does not diminish that Jesus sees you under your fig tree right now. In the deepest, darkest pain, in the moments of uncertainty, he sees you there and knows you. Not ashamed of you, not embarrassed by you, is not angry with you. And Jesus, this morning, loved ones, he knows exactly what sign to show you and me to reveal to us that he's known us. And a lot of times, it's just a matter of us slowing down for 15 minutes long enough to get still and become aware of how these emotional programs have been driving us and let them go for 15 minutes. And what comes from that is this mysterious transformation of, I'm known. I'm perfectly known right now. 
In all my blemishes, I'm known and I'm loved. And I'm telling you, there's a sweetness of happiness and a, a genuineness in the smile that comes across human faces who are beginning to be transformed by Jesus at this level, in this capacity. Healthy discipleship cultures for our church. Guys, we welcome doubt. We welcome questioning. We welcome challenging. We welcome investigating. These are all, as we see from Nathaniel, super important facets of coming to see Jesus. Our questions, our doubts, of which, honestly, I have many, many, those are facets of us coming to know Jesus as he draws us in. And we invite, because we believe, we invite even the most hard-hearted, we believe Jesus knows how to show them in the moment when he chooses, he knows how to show humans, I have always known you, and this is what you've always longed for. So we're not afraid to invite. It's not on us to show them Jesus. It's on us to invite and let Jesus show them Jesus. Did that make sense? I hope that made sense. Now, we're almost done. I got to highlight this. We're on a major secular California university. We live in an urban hub. We need to know this. There is a difference between healthy skepticism and entrenched cynicism. And I have fallen into both many times. We see from Nathaniel, the man had his doubts, and he was asking his questions, but he had an open-hearted curiosity, enough to where he could come and say, maybe I'll go to a Sunday gathering just so I can make fun of it. But at least he was willing to go, right? <laughs> there was something happening in this man where there was an awareness of openness, even if the door was cracked open just a little tiny bit. That's healthy skepticism. That's noble, that's integrous, that's real wisdom, that's real human character as God intended. This entrenched cynicism that we live in, though, is something categorically different. Today, for our society, doubt is enthroned as the only thing to be believed. And you are mocked and scorned if you hedge over anything but a declaration of your doubt. A declaration of your deconstruction, of that which you were raised in, that which maybe you think is too authoritative, that which you think is too patriarchal. That is the only thing that is raised up as that's noble, that's true. But eventually, as C.S. Lewis said, you can deconstruct and deconstruct and deconstruct, and then pretty soon you have nothing. You have a bedrock that has been deconstructed, and your identity and your being falls through it into the abyss. Cynicism actually says, God... You have to show me yourself according to my demands. Here's my list. You do this, and then I'll say that you're my God. Cynicism and hard-heartedness causes us to be entitled, and we actually, and our society does this so well. I've done this. We try to take God hostage. We kind of put, our, we put him in a chicken wing in our prayer, and like, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and then maybe I'll do this. And we have our checkbox, but you need to understand, and if you're the skeptic in the room this morning, the hard, cynical one, boy, I, I know you because I have been you, and God has delivered me in so many ways and continues to deliver me. Two things. One, welcome. Even in your hard-hearted cynicism, you're sitting in a Sunday gathering. Well done. That's, that's amazing to me. But second, our cynicism creates a false relationship with God where we're God and God does as we will. And God loves us too much to let us live the lie that we know more than he does or that we know how to govern the universe better than he does. Does that make sense? God is actually the all-knower, and our cynicism, it begins to melt when we finally let the door crack open and we embrace this open-hearted posture that says, okay, 
maybe there is a God that maybe knows more than I do, that maybe is able to show me things about myself that I don't even know. And that's where the light begins to break into the darkness. And that's my invitation to all of us. No matter where you're at in this spectrum of discipleship, always let the door crack open that says, maybe this God is bigger and wiser and more loving than I could ever imagine. And it's through faith and trust and just seeing that moment that transformation continues to occur. That's what happened to Nathaniel. He experienced a God who knew him perfectly, and that was sufficient evidence for him to follow Jesus. Now, for those of us that do soften, every day God says he'll show us more. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You've had this experience of me knowing you in some measure? Look, you're going to see greater things than these. Discipleship in Christ is this transformation process where over and over we see greater and greater things in us, through us, and in the world as we abide in Jesus. As we point to him, one of the greatest things that begins to happen is we begin to decrease. I know that sounds counterintuitive. But the kingdom of God multiplies and increases. Our desires change. Our names and our identities and our futures are radically reshaped by the kingdom of heaven. And all of this, you guys, I know I've said it a thousand times already, it all starts with the simple intentional practice of invitation. Something so simple as you want to grab lunch with me and getting to know somebody. God intends to transform the world through three simple words. Come and see. God intends to transform the entire universe through three simple words. Come and see. Now before we come to communion this morning, I wanted to give us some concrete stuff to do this week for our communities and for yourselves, so that there's actually something to sink our teeth into. This week, I would exhort you to do this. You can take a picture of this. Ask, who am I mentoring and and multiplying Jesus' influence into in this season of my life? Max, can you just go ahead and put up all all of them at once? Take time this week, grab your journal, and ask this question of yourself in the spirit. Who who am I? Who, who right now am I mentoring? I'm going to get out of the way. Who am I mentoring? Who am I, who am I influencing Jesus' life into in this season of my life? And as you do that, pray for them. Just pray for them. Second, as you're doing that this week, take time. And I did this. I've been doing this for two weeks. It's really profound what happens when you do this. In your journal, at the top of your journal, write this question. What do you want? What do you want? And then be brutally honest with yourself. I wrote out some of the gnarliest things. I was so embarrassed by what I wrote. I, it started with, I just went as shallow as I could with my topmost desires. I want a million dollars. I want a 1973 FJ40 Toyota Jeep. <laughs> I want a couple more surf. I just started listening to all those things. And then I started to ask why. Why do I want those things? And I wrote those answers. Then I got deeper. I got into some of the darker parts. Oh, I wish I don't have Instagram anymore, but I wish I could be an Instagram influencer. Why? I wish I could be a YouTube influencer. Why? Power, control, security began to rise to the surface. Then I got really deep. I want affection. I want real relationships. Why? Because my God is a community of Trinitarian relationship. It's, I can't even survive without it. And as I went down that list, writing these things out, in the silence, in the solitude, 
in union with Christ, I began to see, and this is where it's met in Christ. And this is where Jesus meets me. This is how Jesus, as I remain in him, will satisfy these desires. And whether they ever come or they don't come, whether I get the FJ40 or I never have to drive a minivan for the rest of my life, <laughs> it's good. It's good because I'm remaining, I feel satisfied and safe. And sec, third, write how Jesus is transforming your identity and giving you a future with a new name. This is a scary one because what he is doing in you is beyond your imagination. Every single one of you are of infinite value and you have infinite power and influence wherever you go. The Christ in you goes wherever you go. And so ask the bold question, when I'm 80, should you give me those years? Who am I? Who am I? And you know what came to me? This is so crazy. You are powerful joy. <laughs> like I'm a tsunami of joy when he's finally done with me. I really am. I feel it sometimes the older I get. Who are you? Ask him. Write it down. And let him then just shape you in those spaces and in those places. And then finally, it's out of that silence and solitude, out of discerning and our desires being transformed and coming to know that we are known as he made us, knowing that we are known as he always intended us to be, knowing that we are known and his affection for us as we are is perfect and he embraces us and he holds us. From there, we walk out into the world and be like, coworker, friend, fellow student, wife, family member, neighbor, you got to come see this. And in that, what that means is come see Christ in me through a lunch. Come see Christ in me through dinners, lavish hospitality. Come to a Sunday gathering. Just dismantle the awkward. Hey, it's a church. They're going to be talking about the Bible, but you're a friend of mine. You're a colleague of mine. Come, come and see. And don't be discouraged when they're like, what good can come out of Christianity? What good can come out of a tiny little community meeting on the east side of the city of San Diego? What good can come out of? Don't be discouraged by that. Just come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see.